issue for all women. Oh, say can you see by the dawn's early Hello, Mickey here, welcoming you to our 4th of July Sunday Chops. Cue cannons, cue fireworks, cue my dog barking for three days non-stop. Freedom joy! Okay, after four years of being constantly yelled at by Donald Trump, a maniac 70-odd-year-old toddler who somehow got himself elected as President of the United States and leader of the free world, COVID reports aside, it's been eerily quiet since 46th US President Joe Biden's inauguration on January the 20th this year. Independence Day seemed the perfect time to have a look at how Biden's doing, what's currently going down in Washington, and what the future may hold. Quick tip, grab your screaming pillow now. And so Hannah and I got on the Zoom with leading UK journalist Helen Lewis, who, as staff writer for The Atlantic, knows a thing or two about American politics. We chat reasons to be cheerful, reasons to be fearful. Biden, Harris, Trump hashtag to the return, the role of the media in, well, everything. And on that note, whether there was anywhere we could actually find the truth so we could decide whether we can handle it. Hello, I am joined on the Zoom by journalist Helen Lewis, staff writer at The Atlantic, and you know, one of our favourites, Helen, hello. Hello. And also the one known as Hannah Dunleavy. Hannah, hello. Hello. Listeners who like our podcast Freshly Squeezed are hearing this on the 4th of July, Independence Day. So Helen's here to talk about America, so we're going to kick off with a positive. Helen, what have Americans got to celebrate right now? Quite a lot, actually. I mean, number one being the fact that American democracy survived the 2020 election, which didn't <laughs> always look like it was going to happen. You know, I think there was a time in which now is almost already being rewritten in front of our eyes. But um, the New York Times just this week put out an incredible documentary about the January 6th invasion of the Capitol building, which is really you know, some truly scary stuff. Mm. Some of these kind of armed militia groups who have been plotting this for, for days, alongside a lot of people who'd fallen down kind of conspiracy theory rabbit holes. So, you know, that's that. I think that was genuinely, truly scary. And I think the next election isn't really, you know, in the bag in terms of definitely going to happen without any hitches. Mm. But, you know, it did happen. Joe Biden emphatically won the popular vote. He won an electoral college victory. And credit to Mike Pence, not something perhaps you hear very often (laughs) in spaces like this. You know, he stood up and he certified that victory. So on a fundamental level, that's pretty good. The Trump organization in New York has just unsealed a grand jury indictment about tax evasion for its chief financial officer. So I suspect Donald Trump may spend some of the next couple of years in and out of depositions trying to defend the way that his companies have been run financially over the last couple of years. We now once again have a a president who believes in the existence of climate change. Always good, given that basically the whole of the West of America is currently in what's known as a mega drought. And bits of the very top of it near um, Canada are experiencing temperatures that they've, they've never experienced before. And actually, America is having a really good vaccine rollout, Mm -hmm. which I think is actually counterintuitively in some ways a bad thing, because I worry that when America feels the pandemic is over, then there'll be so much less coverage of it. It'll be so much lower down the the list of kind of uh, things like the G7. So, yeah, I think for a lot of Americans, there's a real feeling that the kind of pandemic's over. And that is obviously not the case in the rest of the world. They have opened up, though, much more than we have, right? 
I mean, some places never even closed down. It was yeah. pretty much done on a, on a federal Florida. level. So if you if you live in a red state, then, you know, the, uh, you have people kind of who think that wearing a face mask is basically you might as well just kind of castrate yourself and live in a hole. <laughs> um, so, so, so there's always, I mean, so, yeah, so I think the combination of vaccines and kind of natural immunity due to the fact that people have kind of been out there catching it means that they're in a slightly different place to us. And they haven't yet really got the Delta variant to the extent that we have. So talking to my American colleagues is a bit like the opening scene of a horror film where they're like should we be more interested in this delta variant we've heard so much about and you're like da-dum, da-dum. <laughs> yes yes yeah, yeah yeah you really should the vaccine rollout is pretty much what i have read about joe biden and what he's been doing since he got in and at first it was just a blessed relief not to have to know trump's every shouty thought but now six months on i'm a little bit disquieted by the relative quiet Am am I right to be so? Is the media giving less attention to Biden? And if so, why? It's definitely a deliberate media strategy. In fact, his chief of staff, Ron Klain, tweeted something that said, sorry, not sorry, over a piece about how there was, you know, there there was no new news lines coming out of the Biden White House. They took a tactical decision, basically, that people were incredibly bored of living in this incredibly high stress drama coupled with the stress of living through the pandemic and perhaps what people wanted from their government was that it just got on and did stuff mm-hmm. and that's quite dangerous in some ways I mean it is a, it, I've certainly felt the relief in my own you know the way that you now don't wake up and check on Twitter and just go what, oh, what's he said overnight what's yep. he done <laughs> and the fact that to a mainstream audience Trump is now absolutely nowhere you know he's just not getting on the mainstream news channels because he's off Facebook for two years and off Twitter indefinitely, you know, it's it's really hard to hear from him. The downside of that is the fact that he's still getting on Fox. You know, he can still call into Fox News where he wants. He can still call into Newsmax, which is like for people who think that Fox is lefty, liberal, you know, <laughs> pro-gay, sort of pro, you know, anti-gun milk toasts. Um, so there are, you know, there is a whole ecosystem out there, never mind the kind of crazy Facebook pages and all that sort of stuff, that is still very willing to hear from Trump. And basically the party, the Republican Party, has decided that his version of what happened in the 2020 election is now the official version, right? It was stolen from him. Oh, wow. Which is genuinely dangerous and weird. So Liz Cheney, daughter of Dick Cheney, you know, was one of the few people who stood up and said, actually, this this election was fair. And she was removed from her role in the Republican House leadership for that. It is now quite hard to get selected as a Republican candidate if you don't at least say Donald Trump was was robbed. Um, so where that takes you in terms of the party in the next couple of years, I think is quite, quite scary. And, and obviously, sort of Biden isn't out there kind of counteracting that. They're trying to do all kinds of other stuff to shore up democratic rights. But it's not, you know, the, the Supreme Court has just at the end of its term essentially signed off on Republican efforts to restrict voting in, in red states. Um, you know, all these very heavy imposition of voter ID laws, all these things that are intended to re- sort of restrict the people who can vote, which fall disproportionately on the kinds of people who tend to vote Democrats. So minorities and low income people. So there is a there is a, a big question mark over the validity of the next election, and I sort of hope that that's something that Joe Biden is quietly working. And the trouble mm. is, is he quietly working on that, or is he be is he getting on with loads of other stuff? And and the fact we're not hearing anything is in fact a signal that nothing is in fact happening. That's that's that would be bad. Yeah, that's scary. <laughs> he has thrown an enormous amount of money at the problem as well, and I wonder whether the fact that it is such an enormous amount of money, like trillions that actually it's a level of money that people almost don't understand. Yeah, I don't even know how many zeros is in there. And therefore your brain kind of shuts down on the economy. You're like, oh, I don't know what that is. I don't know how much that is. I don't know where that money's coming from. I don't know what how much that money is. 
Yeah, giving people money turns out quite a surprisingly popular political advice. <laughs> it was one of Donald Trump's big successes, actually. So they had they had stimulus checks during the pandemic, and I think a thousand dollars one of them. And it was really heartbreaking to read the stories about what that meant that people could do, and mm. the fact people were finally going to be able to get their like abscess in their tooth fixed that they had been you know nursing for six years because they didn't have insurance, they couldn't deal with it, or you know whatever it might might be. So that that was a really popular Trump policy. I believe he put his signature on all of them because he's Donald Trump and you know he couldn't stop himself but um, <laughs> it's it's an interesting turn because it, you know, the same thing has happened in left-right economic politics in the UK right is that we had 10 years of austerity here with the uh, government led by David Cameron and George Osborne saying we don't have money the financial crisis wiped, wiped us out you know we've got to cut back public services and that's really switched and actually the new consensus, you know, obviously I mean, the pandemic affects this hugely, but it is, you know, we, we've had an uplift in universal credit, for example, um, and lots of other stuff has just been pumped into the economy. And actually the, the Conservative Party has just sort of decided to be okay with a big running big deficits and debts. And something a bit similar has happened in America, which is not what I would have expected. I mean, the kind of the kind of joke among political reporters was that now that the Democrat is back in the White House, the Republicans are going to go back to caring about the debt again, right? Because mm. this is what happened all the way through the Obama administration. They kept being like, the debt, the debt, like, you know, how will we ever service all this debt? And then as soon as the Republican president gets in, they're like, eh, yeah, debt, man, be fine. <laughs> we pay it. China something, we'll pay it off. Inflation will be great. But actually, he did manage to get those two absolute whopper bills through infrastructure um, bills. However, he did have to use a bit of political chicanery to do so which suggests that he will have problems actually if passing straightforward spending bills is going to be a lot more difficult than mm. using this uh, arcane process called reconciliation to sort of smuggle it through the budget. Yeah. Can we stick with the media for a bit? Because for the last four years, the media has focused not so much on what was said or judged an idea on its specific merits, but who whose mouth it came out of. So we're kind of at that point now where... We're not reassessing what Trump did, but, you know, the wall, Kamala's got to sort out what's going on down at the wall. The lab leak theory is back on the table for whatever the merits of that are, and maybe not as batshit as when Trump first said it. So I'm wondering, have the last four years entrenched views so deeply in the media that there's no coming back from it? Is the left ever going to criticise Biden? Is the right ever going to give him a fair crack of the whip? Basically, is the media hamstrung itself a bit? I think it's really difficult to see how it comes back for it. So my ultimate boss, Jeffrey Goldberg, who's the editor of The Atlantic, interviewed um, Barack Obama for the, um, when his book came out, A Promised Land. And one of the things that he said was that when he first campaigned in 2008, he used to go to a small town in you know, one of the swing states, like Ohio or Iowa or somewhere like that. And you'd meet the editor of the local newspaper. And the guy might be a kind of Republican. He might be like a little bow tie, you know, kind of old fashioned newspaper editor. But he knew that he ran a local paper. You know, both Democrats and Republicans bought it. Mm-hmm. And therefore he said, you know, even though that guy might be a bit opposed to you, might thought, you know, Barack Hussein Obama, I've got a funny name. He would still be interested in hearing what you had to say. And that has gone. And that's gone in the UK as well. A huge, you know, hundreds of local papers have closed over the last couple of decades here. And the same thing. And of course, America doesn't have the BBC. It doesn't have a state broadcaster with a remit to be impartial. So what you have in those areas instead are local radio stations, which are often highly partisan. And you have, you know, people going on Facebook every day and following people that, you know, I, I struggle to deal with the fact that one of the most powerful journalists in the whole world, if you can call him a journalist, is a guy called Dan Bongino. And he's, you know, he runs this incredibly 
successful Facebook page is incredibly hyperpartisan and right wing. And just, but but this never gets discussed because it's sort of happening in the darkness somewhere on Facebook mm-hmm. to only Facebook people. And it's very, you know, and, and the mirror image of that on the left, you know, I find articles in the New York Times and I sort of think, that's a bit left wing. <laughs> it's a bit left wing right? even for me. And yeah. by, you know, by British sort of porting that to British standards, they, they, te- they you know, they, there has been a problem with American liberal media that it has only started to talk to college graduates who work in professional industries who live on the coasts mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and it has this incredibly rarefied set of assumptions about what people should do and what the yeah. codes are and it frames them as stuff that you know are just simple acts of politeness but actually for lots of people are quite a quite a sort of stretch to, to rewire their understanding I'm talking about the attitudes to race and gender so I don't know how you put those two things back together because the market is now just structured so much that, that you know that, that you can't straddle it. I mean, the Atlantic has got a more diverse range of columnists than most, but like yeah. we we didn't have anybody who was straightforwardly pro-Trump, and the New York Times really struggled with that. You know, who do you get to speak and write columns that have insight into the modern Republican Party when the modern Republican Party is pretty close to actually being a far-right party mm. at this point? And actually, do you want to give airtime to? racist conspiracy theories and uh, you know you sort of you, you need to understand them but it's very hard to bring that into your tent and I'm sure that you know the the reverse happens on the other side you know yeah. that they think you know Ibram X Kendi and Robin DiAngelo are, uh, who write about race are sort of basically hate America and want to destroy it and so their listeners don't and viewers don't want to hear from them either I think again I come back to like we're very lucky to have the BBC because you have to have people from across the political spectrum have to sit on the same sofa and talk to each other and that's very uncomfortable sometimes but it's ultimately better than the american picture where you just have complete bifurcation of audiences i I think the perfect example of this happened yesterday i managed to lose 200 followers on twitter in a stroke because i retweeted the profile that the new york times wrote about joe rogan and said this is just bad reporting you read it and you just thought, I know less about Joe Rogan than when I started reading this. There was no there there. In what way? Was it sneery about him? Uh, it was really sneery. It was exceptionally sneery about him, about his listenership. I mean, like him or don't like him, he is a phenomena. And it came across as kind of green-eyed as well. It came across that he's got this level of control, which he shouldn't have. It focused on really, really odd things like his appearance whereas if that was a woman you've been writing about that would not have been acceptable but the main problem was it was really badly sourced it didn't speak to Joe Rogan himself it didn't speak to anyone who knew him in the last 20 years the closest thing they had to talking to anyone who knew them in the last 20 years was that they asked Tim Dillon the comedian for a comment and Tim Dillon had publicly on Twitter told them to fuck off and actually that is that isn't even news because we all knew that because it was on Twitter a couple of weeks ago. So it was just it was really poor, and I just thought all you're doing is driving more people away from you. The people exactly the people that you should be trying to reach, non college educated, middle class coastal people. Yeah, I thought it was really disappointing. I tell you what, they missed a trick. I interviewed him in the last twenty years. They could have asked me for a quote. Really? Really? <laughs> yeah. He interviewed him for Metro probably about 15, 16 years ago. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, there we go. You, I phone up the New York Times now, but you're exactly right, Hannah. There is a problem with that. So I guess for anybody who doesn't know, Joe Rogan runs a very popular podcast, which he also films, and he has incredible guests on it. Like He had a, he got Elon Musk smoking weed and yeah. you know, Tesla right at the beginning of mad Elon Musk era. <laughs> <laughs> right? He was on the upswing of that. He had my, my former sparring partner, Jordan Peterson, on there. He's had lots of people on there 
talking about um, gender issues. I think he's renowned as one of the most, I don't know how you'd say this, I guess, gender critical people. Like, for example, he was very, because his background is in mixed martial arts, he was very against Fallon Fox, a trans woman competing against women in, in martial arts. So he provides a kind of completely distinctive voice to what is assumed to be polite opinion. Mm-hmm. And the Atlantic ran a profile of him, and again, they didn't get to speak to him. But it was it was generous, and it was about the fact that his audience kind of see themselves as just like regular guys. Mm. And actually, that's something I think that the some of the more liberal media struggles to, to deal with is the fact that lots of people are very happy just being regular guys. They don't want to be sort of incredibly special um, yeah. <laughs> sunbeams. Uh, you know, they just want to have a ni- <laughs> nice life and a, you know and, and see their kids and like have a decent house and all that kind of stuff. Like those very, I guess we were once called the bourgeois values. But the other thing that I find mad about the sort of Joe Rogan series is he's a podcast like two hours long. Mm. I mean. You know, say what you like, but he will have someone on who is like a neuroscientist and talk to them for two hours. I don't yeah. think like, there shouldn't be this sort of picking out his sort of most controversial bits does a grave disservice to the fact that he has a great spirit of intellectual inquiry I would where, say- from which he comes and was like, hey, I'm just a schmuck, but I'm really interested yeah. in this. Like, tell me yeah. about your specialism. I would say the word I would use to describe Joe Rogan is curious. And I would say that in any sense of the word that you use, curious, that's what Joe Rogan is. He just is interested and I think by wording questions in an everyman style that's what appeals to people because they don't feel like the answer is going to blow their mind the worst possible thing you can do as an interviewer is to be really superior because you're not that you're there on behalf of the audience Mm. and you have to therefore adopt the posture of the audience which is I don't know this but I might be interested to know this I like I always think this when I'm doing interviews it's not your opportunity to show off the huge amounts of research that you've done sometimes you have to sort of deliberately make yourself look naive I I can see Mickey being like it's quite painful isn't it sometimes because because then people go oh how stupid are you and you're like well I'm not actually I didn't know the answer to this question totally knew the answer but you know yeah Yeah, but like who wants to listen to me give a lecture but I think that's one of the problems that the the liberal media in the US has really got itself into and and your point about um, Tim Dillon making hay out of telling the um, New York Times to F off is is really interesting because there is a whole now whole media ecosystem that is anti the MSM like that's its whole thing and and it sort of overlaps with the kind of anti-wokery stuff but it's basically you're not going to hear this from the mainstream media and it's like these people have now built themselves followings that are exactly the same size as the mainstream media. It's kind yeah. of, that's kind of fascinating to me. You know, Joe Rogan has got an audience the size of the Washington Post or something like that, right? Yeah. He just has. And yet and yet it's sort of, they're, they're sort of seen as doing two completely separate entities and, and he's the underdog to them, which is not helped obviously by the fact that you know, Spotify employees tried to get his show pulled and stuff like that. Mm-hmm because that kind of anti-council culture thing I find really difficult to deal with and it's definitely something we've imported from America because ordinary people by and large don't get stuff you know written about them when they're cancelled they just lose their jobs and it's horrible but there is also an industry of people who have been cancelled and have, have kind of parlayed this into future fame yeah. and people find it really difficult to deal with the fact that both things are happening at once yeah yeah I'm not yeah. I, I'm nodding everyone yeah because that is yeah. absolutely it's so spot on I think it's really, you know, it's really hard to deal with the fact that by definition, the, the worst instances you're almost certainly not hearing about because they're happening to people who are right at the bottom of the food chain in terms of jobs and stuff like that. And and because also this is my other gripe about the modern media, there is a real drought in, in terms of funding for basic reporting. It's really expensive to do reporting. Everybody relies on the few bits of reporting that we have, but who are the people who are actually going to you know, put the money into the loss leader to do that? And again, here we're very lucky with the BBC. America, it's harder 
because you have you have the New York Times, you have the Washington Post, you have a couple of you know the big TV stations, but actually a huge amount of, of local reporting has just gone and yeah. been hollowed out, and that's that's the same thing. So you get these kind of campus controversies, and they're only ever reported from one hyperpartisan standpoint or the other. There's no one as an honest broker in the middle going like, let me give you the you know entirely fluid representation of this in which everybody has just slightly done something wrong, rather than it being you know one way or the what spun one way or the other. Oh, Helen, yeah. nuance. It's never going to catch on. <laughs> no. on. No, no, no one wants it. It's, I mean, it's like the bane of my life is the fact oh. that no, no, one, no one wants it, it turns out. Well, I do, but then I get called a centrist fuck. So there we go. <laughs> I'm um, sorry, I should stop calling you that. <laughs> <laughs> Let's stick with this topic, because I, I think that Biden managed to win the nomination by, by actually avoiding all of this stuff. That's fine when you're running for the nomination, but when you're the president, you kind of can't. How surprised are you at how deeply he's thrown himself into the culture war since he's become the president? And how do you think non-Twitter America is going to respond to it? I definitely agree with you. It was absolutely vital during the election that he wasn't seen as, you know, an emissary of um, hyper-wokeness, whatever you want to call it. I know we're not really allowed to use that word, but it definitely describes something that people recognise. That kind of sense of sort of patronising, pious priesthood of people who've got the truth and, you know, and they're annoyed that everyone else hasn't. To me, the key quote of that campaign is the bit when he said, do I look like a, was it, do I look like a radical socialist man? You know, <laughs> just this, I think that the fact that he was this kind of old white guy really helped him. And, and that really troubles me, right? Because it just by definition, I think that a female candidate or minority candidate would have been seen as politically radical. Yeah. And it does a lot to explain actually why Barack Obama spent so much time talking about the post-racial society and that how, you know, he wanted to be president for all Americans because he knew that his candidacy would be t- taken to some people as sort of like, a, a, you know, an injury to everything, that, an idea of what they thought America was. Mm. And he had to offset that. So I think Biden started that with a huge advantage in not having to do that. But I also think he was very brave in basically completely getting off Twitter, not doing the kind of, you know, ev- being leaping on there to do every corporate visibility day. You know, I find it really difficult now because I don't know how you feel about Pride Month, which we've just gone to, but I just began to feel like I can't watch companies which trade in Middle Eastern countries that have institutionalised homophobia lecture yeah. me about the rainbow smile and how much they care. You just think, just sod off. Like, I, you know, I'm not taking Absolutely. lectures from you on this. Barclays, I, I did, did tweet this the other day, but if you know the whole thing about Barclays, whether that's for right or for wrong, what Barclays have done involved in a pride, that's not the issue with me. The issue is Barclays don't care about social justice. We learned that in 2008. Why, why are we still falling for the idea that they are the bank of the people? I find it insane. Two excellent articles in The Atlantic. Helen, your article on woke capitalism, which we recommend a lot on the podcast and is so, so good. And also a more recent one that was about kind of people stealing the pride flag for their own ends, which again yeah. touches on this. A really good read as well. Yeah, I thought that was really, yeah, that was really interesting. And I, and I think the moment that I began to think I'm just over all this stuff is when I found out the BAE Systems, the arms manufacturer, is a Stonewall diversity champion. And it's like, you're, li- I mean, uh, yeah. what? Uh, anyway, but, but, but I think there's a lot of that stuff in, in American culture, right? Um, yeah. That it has ended up being, that progressive values have become an incredibly strong corporate branding tool. So you get lots of companies that want to seem yeah. really progressive. And actually, 
people like as I mean all of us as I would say people who broadly support progressive causes still nonetheless find it repellent because it's just so hollow right you know show me a minute where you've sacrificed something so me that you haven't done trade with China because of their treatment of the Uyghurs like whatever it might be Mm -hmm. you don't do any of that stuff you only do this stuff where you hector me about (laughs) about things that I already believe i.e diversity and equality just to show off so I think that Joe Biden did very well to kind of sidestep all of all of that stuff and and giving the appearance that he was sort of better than other people and lecturing them it's going to be harder because there are elements within his party that want, really want to push that stuff. And, you know, actually, one of the things I think he's done really well, and on economic leftism, which is very different from kind of cultural progressivism, he has always had a very good working relationship with Bernie Sanders, you know, who represents the kind of leftmost economic wing of the, um, the Democratic Party. So I can see that he would probably do quite well in, in, in economic terms to have a broad coalition because you know at the other side he, he's it's obviously it's a dead split in the senate and you know people like joe manchin senator joe manchin of um, west virginia in the uk he would be solidly a conservative and quite pretty right wing one actually um so actually getting things passed in economic terms you've got to kind of get this this line that goes from joe manchin to bernie sanders that's tough to hold together but i think with his personal relationships that becomes easier what's harder is how do you keep the bits of your coalition so Planned Parenthood for example has sort of now become a kind of racial justice organization and a transgender health organization as if the abortion problem had been solved (laughs) and 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 I think that's really tough because what those organizations want for their donor base is big kind of flashy gestures and those are again slightly alienating to lots of people they're alienating to people who don't like the message behind them and they're also alienating to people who think that they're just splashy gestures with nothing behind them so i think he will struggle more to keep the party together on kind of cultural issues or really to avoid the republicans running against the leftmost flank you know the ideal version of the democratic party for the republicans to run about is one where basically you know everyone has to have their pronouns tattooed on their forehead and, you know, um, grovel in front of a statue of Harriet Tubman for the sins (laughs) of America. That's the kind of party that they want to run against. So that's the version of the party that you find on on Fox. And he's got to do some work, unfortunately, to outline a vision of racial justice and gender justice that nonetheless doesn't play to those stereotypes. Yeah. So you mentioned that Biden is an old white man and you mentioned, obviously, he's he's quite good pals with Bernie Sanders, an old white man. So we've got another old white man in power in America. How up to the job do you think Biden really is? It's funny, isn't it? Because I watch people sort of saying, oh, he's barely sentient. You can't string a sentence together. And then I watched some of the debates and I thought, he's fine. And from talking to all of my colleagues who've covered him for 20, 30 years, they will say he's not the dazzling megawatt politician he was at 50. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he was just a mere spring chicken at 50. Um, but you know what? He's really not senile as far as anybody can see. Like, it, it's very, you know, I know that the trouble is there have been previous, right? There have been two very big examples in FDR, who concealed his disability, and Ronald Reagan, who had dementia for the last couple of years of his presidency. Mm. There have There is prior on the idea that the president might be you know um battling health issues and and, and somehow it's been covered up Mm -hmm. so i can see why people are kind of worried about that but i think on the evidence of i mean he he, you see him at the g7 he was sort of skipping around the cornish beach and i think (laughs) i don't you know i'm literally half his age less than half his age and i think i'm not sure i've 
but you know my appetite for spending another day talking to Boris Johnson about climate change would not be that high yeah that's true um, that's a good point so I don't I really don't think that you can actually conceal it you remember there was all this stuff about Hillary Clinton because um, she fainted because she had flu on the campaign trail she fainted at a 9-11 Memorial Day and there was all this stuff about how she secretly had a brain hemorrhage and she was mm. at death's door it's a very useful way to put a kind of stink on a candidate mm-hmm. that there might be yeah. something wrong with them. Whereas you end up with Donald Trump who overtly couldn't finish a thought, right? <laughs> uh, and this true. was not uh, hidden that he would go and give speeches where you sort of just blink and go, I'm sure, what was the subject of this sentence? And, you know, and obviously couldn't, you know, stories were coming out all the time about how they weren't giving him briefings written in words. They were essentially, he just liked a couple of pages with pictures on. Mm. <laughs> and, and and because it was sort of up front, no one really cared that he just seemed to be compl- like, basically like having a giant toddler in the White House who just yeah. got distracted very easily, got angry, changed their mind all the time. But that was fine because we all knew about it. Oh, Helen, men are so emotional. It's just a true. It's true. <laughs> they can't be trusted to be put in, st- in front of... St- I, I mean, that, I think that's one of the most fascinating recurrent tropes of US politics. I mean, Biden, to his great credit, I think he's actually very emotional. He's obviously suffered the loss of his son. And the way that he speaks about that to this day is still really... Like, he will just well up in tears. And I think that is actually, again, something that connected with a lot of people, particularly during... the after the pandemic right when so many people felt mm-hmm. sort of scared and they felt they'd lost something the idea that someone was kind i think was was actually also a big deal yeah I agree. yeah okay so let's talk about women then because the pressure on kamala harris is is huge let's say that um for many reasons now she's serving an apprenticeship way more you could argue that most vice presidents are serving some sort of apprenticeship but she seems to be serving an apprenticeship way more than most given there is this assumption that Biden might not even do a full term and she could step in so how do you think that she is handling this I think she's had a really tough few months I mean she has been given the poison chalice to end all poison chalices right which she's responsible for the US Mexico border and so immediately you know there was there were huge numbers of reports media reports all the way through the Trump term about family separations and about the inhumane conditions people were being kept in and now you know, not to get all right-wing conspiracy theorists, it has been notable that you've heard rather less about mm-hmm. some of that stuff, which hasn't stopped. Uh, family separations are down, but you know, it's it's still not. It is still not in the interest of the U.S. government to make immigrating to the U.S. through the U.S.-Mexico border a pleasant experience in any way, right? So it is still pretty p- punishing and inhumane the way that people are treated. And there were huge demands, particularly from right-wing media, about when are you going to go, when are you going to go, when are you going to go? And then she eventually went while having to do a kind of like, but I'm not here because you told me to. I'm here because I want to be. Yeah. Um, so I think it's really tough. You know, Biden, when he was vice president to Obama, was renowned as being sort of the foreign policy guy, like having had years of experience on, foreign, on Senate foreign policy committees. And he was there to kind of temper... Obama, who was very young, who had only been a senator for like, you know, less than a decade at that point, who never really had the foreign policy experience. So they've worked out quite a good way in which she's there to be kind of complementary to to Biden. You know, she's a bit more she's a bit more fresh and youthful i mean she, she's um i mean she it's, i mean i find it but as i get older i find american politics is love of incredibly old people more and more uh praiseworthy and i'm you know i'm all in favor of it <laughs> the idea that you can have a great like senate career well into your 80s so i i think that she's she's designed to be a compliment to him but you know vice presidents often don't make it over the line that you know mm. the, the idea of an i mean talk, talk to al gore about how that one went you know yeah. the heir apparent is is not a, always such a great position to be in 
And, and she would have to do what Hillary Clinton did in picking Tim Kaine as her vice presidential running mate, right? She would have to pick someone sort of boring and probably, let's be honest, a white man, I think. if she I, That would be the truly radical campaign, is if you see Kamala Harris running alongside a woman, particularly a woman of colour, in mm. 2024, then you can be assured that something has really changed in America. But I would, I would be very surprised if that happened. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not going to go to the bookies with that one, Helen. Yeah, sorry. I might. I like, I like a woman. I've got money on Andy Murray to win Wimbledon. So. <laughs> I think I've got money on Andy Murray to be our vice president. And I was going <laughs> to say, I'm afraid cool. he wasn't born in America, so he's not entitled to citizenship. <laughs> Boris Johnson, however, obviously was, but renounced his American citizenship because he didn't want to have to keep paying tax in America. In fairness, America's tax rules are kind of crazy, right? That you have to pay, if you're an American citizen, wherever you live in the world, you pay tax to America. I mean, I sort of like that. I mean, for a country that's supposedly sort of so like let, you know, we can't possibly regulate anything. They're nonetheless very keen for people to yeah, pay taxes or, on their overseas income. Also, if you're British and you live there and you sell your property, you move to America and sell your property in whatever country you left from, you pay tax in America and in the country you left from on the property you sell. I know. If only they could tax people in America who are Americans like this, then you know, they might have not such a, such a budget hole. But anyway. So I mentioned at the top that Helen is one of our favourites. And, you know, the reasons are massive. But when I asked her about this interview, she sent me some talking points favourite. So, yeah, Helen, in those talking points, you mentioned potential horrors on the horizon. Uh, what What do you think they are? Oh, right, just because I like to be Debbie Downer on this one. I'm afraid so. Well, what we talked about at the top, which is 2024. So at the moment you have um, the Democrats control uh, both houses of Congress. Um, it's a knife edge split in the Senate, but Kamala Harris as vice president has the casting vote. So currently, you know, they can get legislation passed, but, uh, you know, you lose even one Democrat or someone who caucuses with the Democrats and you're kind of basically stuffed. So that really limits what, what Biden can do. So... He's obviously had a, a, a very big first hundred days in terms of coronavirus, but and I think that was driven by the experience of Obama, who came in, if you remember, in the middle of the financial crisis and spent a huge amount of his political capital passing TARP, the Troubled Asset Relief Program, which is basically a huge bailout for all the banks, and would like to have gone bigger with that, but was sort of you know warned off it by the fact that. <laughs> the Republicans wouldn't wear it was the kind of argument. So I think Biden has kind of taken that experience and decided he would go really big in the first 100 days. But from here, it's really hard. Like there will just be continuous legislative gridlock. The midterms, it would not be at all surprising if um, the Democrats lost ground, at which point it becomes even harder for him to pass anything. Mm-hmm. You know, His whole reputation was sort of supposed to be Mr. Bipartisan. On high profile stuff, that's become harder and harder. There's still a lot of you know lower level stuff that happens. But then you get to the nightmare scenario where, so Facebook, when they upheld the um, oversight board ruling to suspend Trump's account, said this will have to be for two years because they have traditionally had a higher bar for political candidates and so the 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 worry about that might be that trump gets his facebook account back just in time for kind of the republican primary season and decides to have another crack at it at which point he either wins and comes back and is now a full bore you know totalitarian anti-democratic candidate which is really the corner he's boxed himself into Mm. or that in order to get elected you have to have the kind of blessing of him sort of Marlon Brando-like in mm. his you know, his lair in Mar-a-Lago. And so the Republicans become this very anti-system party, I mean, an evolution of what they currently are. At the same time, you know, the Democrats haven't been able to strengthen the Voting Rights Act. So you have, you know, real problems about people getting to vote, real 
suspicion cast on the voting process itself, which is already happening. We've seen what's happening in Arizona and Georgia. I mean, it, to me, it's sort of mad that America has electronic voting machines when it's an incredibly distrustful country of yeah. its elections. Right. Like, say what you like about paper ballots, but like you can look at them, they're right mm. there. Like, mm. But this last election was not a pleasant one for anybody who loves democracy. And of course, what you might end up with if you end up then with a Republican-controlled Congress is a refusal to certify the result if a, if a Democratic president were elected again. And like even, I don't know, three or four years ago, that would have sounded like crazy talk. Mm. But I think that when you look at what happened on January the 6th, you realise quite how far down the rabbit hole a sizable minority of the Republican base has gone. Um, you know, yeah. into things like QAnon particularly. And quite how many militias there are, things like the Oath Keepers, you know, these very highly armed, you know, the Proud Boys, you know, these 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 names that you kind of hear who are just kind of guys with huge amounts of assault weapons yep. and body armour who, are, you know, are flock to Trump as the kind of, I don't think they've got any particular loyalty to his politics even, but as an avatar of the kind of politics that they're, you know, sort of dirty fighting street politics that they're kind of into. That's my worry. Everybody at The Atlantic was incredibly consumed by this story. This was one of our really big stories and we're proud to have published lots of stuff about, you know, really urging people to take this stuff seriously in advance. And I, and I hope that people still, still are. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I look at it and I just think that the trouble is, I mean, uh, uh, this is in no way an endorsement of republicanism, but, you know, the old style, what you might call reasonable republicans, you know, like it's just incredible how republicanism has shifted from something that, you know, you might say I wouldn't vote for them. But, you know, I might go out for a drink with them to hang on this person. The how, how, how are they in any position of authority? I mean, Jewish space lasers. It's incredible. It really is. I'm all for them. I think we should have more space lasers. <laughs> My brother keeps referring to it as that Death Star of David woman. Which, um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a great makes me laugh it. a lot. But I guess like the thing is, when, when you've mentioned Trump and we've talked about Trump over the course of this podcast... It's still, bits of it are so ridiculous that you can't help but laugh. He still feels like a laughable character, but also he was very scary. But it feels like looking back with, with hindsight and the way that the Republican Party has shifted, that term was successful in ways that no one expected. Oh, yeah. I mean, the most obvious being the fact that he managed to appoint an enormous load of judges, not just to the Supreme Court, where he got um, Amy Coney Barrett, like in the sort of last couple of days, yeah. uh, let alone Brett Kavanaugh earlier on in the term. But, you know, the, the, the Supreme Court now has a 6-3 conservative majority, which has huge implications for all kinds of legislation. But and, and I guess it's harder for people in Britain to kind of grasp the problem, which is that because there's been gridlock for so long in, in the Senate and in, in, in Congress, in the House of Representatives, things have ended up in in the Supreme Court as the kind of only place that can actually make final rulings. Mm -hmm. The composition of that court has become more and more and more fraught over time. And yeah, and you've just had a couple of 6-3 rulings just in the last couple of days, actually, where where it's splitting on exactly the the lines. So there's a real worry. So there's Justice Stephen Brera, who is one of the kind of liberals on the court, is 82. And there is a real push now to be like, look what happened to Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Ruth Bader Ginsburg sat through the Obama term and into the Trump term, and then died in the last days of um, of, of the Trump term, and was was hastily replaced. And there is a real feeling of don't let let's please let's not let that happen again. You mm-hmm. you've got to retire under a Democratic president when we've got a Democratic controlled Congress, so that we can be assured of getting a, a nominee through. I mean, I still think it's going to be a 
pretty knockdown drag out fight to get a democratic nominee through but there is a real fear there and you know that has come about because exactly the problem is that they can't pass laws so things end up in court mm. so there is now a kind of question about whether or not it's probably getting too nerdy they try the democrats now move to um, abolish the filibuster which is the most american politics oh, word in the in the yeah, senate yeah, you know the idea that you can essentially talk out bills mm. and it's you know there's and there's a really big split about the fact that you know don't start mucking around with the way democracy works otherwise you're just licensing republicans to do it in their ways too Mm -hmm. versus we are never going to get anything passed if it can just be talked out in the senate so i think that's going to be a kind of constant drumbeat over the next couple of months i think that leads quite nicely on to the last question hannah okay so we were talking about you know uh, impartiality in the media i'd like to know if you could give people in this country who are interested in finding out what's going on in america a suggestion of what you think a reliable news source or reliable news sources are. Where is the truth, Helen? Where do we find it? I mean, I feel like I would probably get the sack if I said anything other than the Atlantic. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, the reason that I think the Atlantic is interesting is it it does the thing that we were were talking about, right? It has got Ibram X. Kendi writing for it, you know, from that very strong anti-racist position versus it's got uh, someone like John McWhirter, who's a black conservative commentator. It adheres to that idea that you should present the best version of your opponent's argument and argue with that if you can't you know you you don't create straw man or you know false versions of of something just so caricature your opponent just so that you can look amazing Mm. actually have have the argument david frum who used to be a speechwriter for george w bush the big critic of trump did a piece immediately after trump stood down which was like here are 11 things that trump did that were actually really good which was really interesting because i just had not read them anywhere and you were like i mean not not all of them i would say intentionally but you know he had done them and that was that was interesting um ditto we had a really interesting piece by rob mayer our sort of climate reporter about the fact that actually a huge amount has happened on climate change in the us in the last 10 years it really isn't all doom and gloom which i think is really important to to remind people that you know things like um, renewable energy has just come on incredibly in the last 10 years and if we just constantly present climate change as this looming horror that no one can do anything about well of course you know it's a cancel of despair why why bother even trying but I, you know, I read um, Brian Stelter's uh, media newsletter is really helpful if you want to know particularly what, what's what's up in Foxland without watching any Fox, which <laughs> yeah. I think I thoroughly recommend. I do read the New York Times. I find a lot of its coverage really good, but I do find that it operates from this default assumption that it sort of has all the answers and that if you don't agree with it on everything, it's because you're kind of morally wrong. Yeah. There's a huge purity spiral there, I think. Yeah. Although but it's got I, some I brilliant writers like Michelle Goldberg, who's one of their opinion writers, yeah. I think is absolutely fantastic. A brilliant writer on feminism in particular. So it's just a very big newspaper. I mean, I say the same about The Guardian. You know, any newspaper that big is going to have some people who make you yeah. grind your teeth. Yeah. I, I would add that um, Jane Coaston's uh, podcast for The New York Times, The Conversation, is really good because she puts two people who don't agree with each other into a conversation. I mean... Who would have thought that would be utterly revolutionary, but it is. And in- do they fight to the death, Hannah? Because that seems to be the only way that could work no, out. No, they have a conversation. They just, and, and it's interesting. And I think she's, uh, I mean, she's a libertarian. Um, she's got an interesting perspective. I think their on the ground stuff is good. If they've actually got a reporter, when they were like reporting from Kenosha, they were great. I think their written from New York opinion stuff is not so great. Yeah, but there is, I mean, you know, there are lots of, I think that, I think CNN is generally pretty down the line. MSNBC, I find, is, is sort of sometimes the mirror image of the right-wing yeah. channels and that it, you just think, actually, I'm not sure I trust you 
to have gone looking for the best available evidence for the other side. I think that's the kind of key thing that certainly when I'm writing on incredibly fraught subjects, you do have to be fair and say, look, I don't agree with this, but this is what this is what people are saying. This is the argument. This is the if you supported this other version of it, this is why your you know your good faith reasons for doing so. And I think that's generally in journalism that makes it much stronger because it just makes the reader come away with the feeling that like it's been transparent. You know, you obviously you believe this, mm. but like here are your reasons for doing it, and here are the counter reasons that you've considered and rejected, rather than reading stories sometimes where it's just like. A, an easy narrative of goodies and baddies and there and some bad people have done bad stuff and the glorious good people have triumphed over them and you just think that's just not how life works is it no no helen as ever it has been a terrifying pleasure talking to you <laughs> where can people find out more about what you're up to because i know you're working on another book at the moment I am. I am. I'm doing many things that are um, at the same time, which is not a good idea. Um, I'm working on a book about genius called The Selfish Genius, which is about how we live with exceptional people, both in the good sense of the fact that we have this idea of genius as a way of saying some people who achieve a lot are very weird. And then in a bad sense of some people who achieve a lot have to be allowed to, you know, trample all over other people's because that's just, you know, that's just how geniuses act. So um, I'm deep in the weeds of research on that. I've got a little Radio 4 series coming up next month called Great Wives, which is all about the wives of uh, famous men. And then in the case of Gertrude Stein, a famous woman, and how they really contributed to their success. Amazing. And I have a Substack because you have to only work in the American media. Mm. It's the law, which is just helenlewis.substack.com. Please tell me one of those women is Eleanor Roosevelt. No, it's not Eleanor Roosevelt. It's... um. Uh, yeah, although she would be a great, exactly a great subject for for this, and and, and the same thing actually, um, Lady Bird Johnson was also really influential in um, particularly in getting LBJ to to stand down to not run again. But yeah, first ladies are a group, kind of great example of the fact that they often are incredibly influential policy advisors, but they have to keep themselves yeah. on the on the down low because otherwise people get very grumpy. Yeah, CF Hillary Clinton, like, you know the idea. Of, <laughs> yeah, you're getting two for one. People like. Rrr all these unelected people and you're like okay I'm going to break it to you about American presidents they're surrounded by unelected people telling them what to do <laughs> oh my god um, yeah anyway so I'm, keep, I'm keeping busy Mickey thank that's you great. that's good are you on Twitter at the moment I'm trying not to be but sometimes you let it, you let it slip don't you you just have to go in and suck in some of the delicious poison sugar <laughs> <laughs> Helen thank you so so much for sparing us some time thank you very much Standard issue for all women.